0: Hi, this is Samantha, and you're listening to the Layman's Doctor podcast, where we're bringing medicine home. Today, I have a very special guest with me, who I've been trying to get to be on my podcast since it launched like a year or so ago, and it's um one of my favorite physicians, um, Doctor Ryan Brooks, who has really been helpful and influential. In my own medical career and in the medical career I suppose of a lot of junior doctors who have worked under him and possibly students who may have known him from their time in school as well. So Dr. Brooks I'm just gonna ask you to introduce yourself right after we're gonna be talking about bedside manner and just everything around that and having a conversation about how to interface and interact with patients, um, especially in a situation like now, where us as healthcare physicians might be under more duress or stress and have increased patient loads um, with limited resources. So, Dr. Brooks, can you introduce yourself for us, please?
1: Sure. My name is Ryan Brooks, as Samantha would have mentioned. I am a Physician, I'm a senior registrar in in the health system, which means that I've completed a qualifying exam to be a consultant. I work in one of a very high volume part of the health sector called the hospital, for want of a better term. Um, And as Samantha would have mentioned, yes, patient load is high. It is increasing what with COVID and many other things happening in the world and in Jamaica. So bedside manner is something that is indispensable in getting a patient to the place where one, they accept the treatment, two, they feel confident in the person who is administering the treatment, and three, they feel that you know, they're served in the system because as humans, we're not, we're not robots really. We, yes, medications need to be dispensed, but it also needs to be dispensed in a context that supports a feeling of being cared for, whether male, female, old, young, everybody, it would appear, responds better to feeling a sense of being cared for. So if I were to say what bedside simon is, bedside manner is a way that we, the physician or any member of the healthcare team interacts with the patient at that point of vulnerability and where that interaction can either go well, where the person feels that sense of care, the sense that something is happening for them, um, some progress is happening in their case or they feel, you know, disappointment, anger, you know, hurt many times. Um, so that's a very critical place so where where the healthcare provider and the person receiving the healthcare into and interact.
0: All right. Thank you for such a succinct uh, um, summary of what Bedside manner is. Um, I think that a lot of persons think that as physicians or as medical doctors that this is something that actually comes to us naturally. And I beg to differ. I remember leaving medical school. I had a conversation with a, with um, someone from the community health. And I said to them, you know, I really think that we should place empathy and, um, those kind of soft skills in our actual courses and make it, uh, a course that actually has a module, has examinations, has um, practicals, and so on, versus kind of leaving us learning about bedside manner from this, this, what's the word I'm looking for, um, in apprenticeship approach, right? And when I was doing the research for it, I looked around and I looked at the research available. And in first world countries, things like empathy, it's actually a module or it's actually a course that's put in place at many medical schools. Not a lot, but it's still put in place. And I, th- I still think that we're stuck in this idea that, well, we can learn medicine from the books. We can learn how to treat persons and patients from the books. And in practice, we'll learn how to examine and practice medicine, but I think there is value in having actual classes and actual on paper um, items about soft skills. So, knowing you personally and why I brought you on here is simply because I've seen you in action. um, And it's not just me, it's a lot of persons have. kind of spoken about your approach to patient care and your approach to patients and you kind of start to hear or learn about um doctors who other doctors kind of look up to in terms of what they see as uh, good interpersonal skills with patients and um others who you may want to just learn what not to do from them and so on and this has kind of been a not like an unofficial type of thing and kind of just been how we learn. We just kind of for me, for example, I would just go to school and even know working there are positions who I see and I'm just like, OK, I love how you do this. Right. So I'm going to try and adapt that um, in my own best practice. So, I don't know, what are your thoughts? How do you think that, one, we learn about bedside manner? And do you think there's a way that we can improve on how we learn it?
1: Well, you raise such excellent points. The truth is, bedside manner has to be taught. There are clearly, some persons are more empathetic than others. And therefore, there is always some learning to be had. I know from personal experience that I have had to be taught bedside manner. I've had to be taught how to break certain news, you know, certain items of news, by others. I've had senior doctors who said, "No, you know, you need to do it this way." You know, take me aside and say, "Okay, do it next time. Do it this way rather than how you did it." So it can definitely be taught. The truth is the interactions that we have with people are so varied and and the types of people that come into our practice are so varied. So many times, you know, you need to be taught and sometimes the senior needs to look on and maybe see an interaction play out, but also take the time to use what moments there are to teach. Just as how examination skills are taught, just as how you know, differentials are taught, you also need to teach how to interface with not only patients, but patients and their relatives. Because more and more of our time is spent interfacing relatives because the the healthcare system, let's face it, needs help. We need help from relatives to get things done for patients. We need help in so many ways to get, you know, get patients through the healthcare system to the desired end. And we engage their relatives in that process. And to engage relatives in that process, you, they also have to understand what is going on. They frequently demand to know what's going on. More and more Dr. Google is around, and patients and their relatives look up whatever is going on and have questions for you. And so instead of hiding your head in in you know, in the sands, you say, Well, you know, we're treating the patient, the patients are only concerned clearly the patient exists in a context and that context is their family the family who brought them there the family who loves them the family who wants to see what's best for them so you have to interface with both the relatives and the family members many a time and that can be a source of friction or it can be a source of delight and it has to be taught there's no other way about it even if you're naturally empathetic you can get better at it and certainly, if you are not empathetic, you can get worse at it, especially if you are in a situation such as ours, our context, which is high stress with COVID and everything. It can get bad. We can, we can go to shreds with patients and relatives. So there's, there's much room to be taught. And, and there's room for failing, too, because it's through failing many times that we learn how to do things better. But there's definitely room to be taught
0: i'm happy that you said that there is room for failure because i think a lot of times we think that we have to be perfect off the bat um especially from a junior doctor's standpoint where as they would say you get kind of thrown into the fire or baptized by fire. um i think a lot of times you feel as though we're supposed to be perfect and uh, we tend more so to talk about our successes. So, for example, um, patients who, patients and relatives who are very um, happy with the service that we give, and they may bring like um what kind, whatever produce or gifts. You know, we hear stories like that. And but then there's also the flip side where a lot of us have experienced um either necessarily being reprimanded or. Or even having interactions that us within ourselves are not happy with. Like, for example, being post-call, which which means that post-call for those who may not be medically inclined for this particular podcast means that you have worked um, about 24 hours um, at the hospital and you'll call that your duty or your call. Um, Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe you're frustrated. You're sleepy, upset. And sometimes that translates that translates into how you give patient care. And I think a lot of us, if especially those who are more um more more like they're more they're more likely to look within themselves, um, they might feel bad about what they may have said, or maybe how they've treated a patient, or maybe What they didn't say, or the time that they didn't give a patient, or their relative, and I know sometimes you can kind of internalize that, but then taking this approach where you know every day is a chance to get better, um, you can make mistakes and you don't have to be defined by your mistakes all the time. You can use those opportunities to get better and get improve and improve. Um, I think would definitely. I think COVID has definitely shown that boy, sometimes you just have um I, I want to say off days, and everybody is kind of entitled to it. And I think no persons are seeing healthcare workers as more human and less as this robotic perfect thing. And hopefully it has shown us ourselves that we are human and we are influenced by outside um, influencers but also just how we feel as well. And because we haven't been taught these skills necessarily, I mean, in community health, we we learned about breaking bad news. And when we were rotating, it's on our papers for how we should break bad news. But I still think that's insufficient. You know, we learn about how to take a history in terms of what questions to ask, but rarely do we really focus on meaning like how to ask the questions. Um, And one thing I really want to touch on is, for example, especially because we're so caught up for time, right? Where sometimes you don't have as much time to give as the patient wants you to give in an interview session. And, you know, sometimes you just have to cut the patient. And I think a lot of us struggle with doing that in a way that doesn't come off kind of abrupt, or abrasive and offensive like we're kind of rushing the patient so it's a nice segue to talk about when we're in our patient interview first of all how do we one approach that patient interview and two how do we keep in mind our time constraints um, keeping the patient on track but as well understand the need that the patient wants to feel heard and wants to get their um, frustrations or their um, problem, their problem list out there, but you also knowing that, boy, I need to reach certain, I have this amount of time, I have this amount of patience, and I need to get to what this problem is so I can start the treatment for this patient.
1: That's a very tough question. Um, Many times, you really just have to be, upfront from the, uh, you know, the outset of the interview, but also warm. I I, I think many times if you can communicate that you are present, even if you can only be present for a, a short period of time, that is much more meaningful than coming in already saying, you know, I can't see you for who you are as a human being because of this next thing to get to. You can understand what I'm saying. So you, you're, you come to the interview, but already a man is on the next task to be accomplished. So it can't be there in the moment. And therefore the patient senses that. And therefore, you know, they feel rushed. or They feel hurried. Or you feel like you have to hurry them along. And so if you can't come in and be warm, even an, even with the, the thought that, you know, I really have to get to the next thing, but I've heard what you're saying, I understand it. We're going to do this and et cetera, et cetera. I, su- I suppose it would be much more meaningful. And if your eye is always on the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing to be done. If if that makes any sense. Um. The, the truth is we can't spend all the time in the world and you have to set boundaries. Many times I see patients wanting to take up my time and I have to, you know, cut them politely and warmly and say, you know, really, I have to get to something else. I hear you, we're going to talk about this later, but I can't, I cannot stop about this right now. You're honest, you're warm, but you're also trying to get, you know, get to get to the next thing. We always have the next thing to get to, unfortunately. We can't spend all the time in the world but you can also for the moment in time that we're there, aim to be as present as we can in, you know, with the patient in the time. Which also means, you know, the certain conversational things like the mms and the ahs and whatever it is, which should come naturally, but maybe they don't, to help the patient understand that you are indeed listening, um, can help to let them know that you're there, you're present, you're not know, on your phone what's happening, whatever it is, you know, whomever it is. Even if you have to, you know, you, know, you try not to do it in a sustained way. So it's, it's difficult to even say it, but you know the pressure. Everybody knows the pressures they're under. The higher the level you get, the more pressures you're under, per- people may not realize it because you have many you know, pots on the fire. But if you can, for a moment, for that one little moment, be present, that will mean a lot.
0: That's true. So I recently started health center and it's, I'm sometimes hesitant to say how many patients I see in the time that we spend at the health center. Um, But it's a lot of patients for the small amount of time that you actually have available. So the interview times vary. Um, And because you want to keep wait time low, you want to keep persons um, as satisfied as possible, you sometimes can't spend as long in the interview session. And I remember reading something. I can't remember what it was or in what context it was, but it spoke about doctors. And I can't remember if it was like a joke video, like on TikTok or something, but it spoke about as soon as a patient starts to speak, you start writing and your head is kind of in the docket and not really looking at the patient. So one thing I've tried to do and the whole point of um, my social media presence or the podcast that I do or the articles that I write is that they're always from a learning standpoint. I'm trying to learn something for myself, but I see the value in sharing it with other people. And when I read something, when I read that and it's true, cause sometimes, you know, can you imagine you're talking to somebody who you're talking about something very vulnerable, right? Um, and they're not even looking at you instead, you know, they're writing or typing. I think it was in the American context. So there are certain points in my interview where I've had to be mindful of saying, Sam, look at the patient in their face and it, it's it's something i have to remind myself about actually and so now it's been automatically for me it's hello i'm dr johnson so i look at them and i introduce myself sometimes i start talking and i go oh i'm sorry did i introduce myself and i take that as another moment to look up because sometimes i genuinely will forget whether or not i've introduced myself but Because I've been practicing it so long, most of the times the patient is like, yes, doc, you did right? And uh, I know that some physicians take the tactic of writing after they've seen the patient. I will do that sometimes. I think that works based on you as an individual. But if you're going to be writing while you're having the interview, there are also moments where you can either say, sorry, I'm just going to jot this down. Uh, It's not that I'm not paying attention to you. Or it's, um, you look up at some point when you're asking. And for me, what I've tried to get done properly is, or as best to my ability, and I'm sure there's much more room for improvement, is that when I have sensitive questions or sensitive presentations, that, um, there's a little bit more extra effort put into that because, you know how uncomfortable it can be to talk about um, items, um, these problems with, for example, your genitals or um, some other, in quotation, embarrassing medical complaint. Um, a question that I think a lot of health doctors or healthcare workers who have to ask questions would want to know is: multiple complaints that don't present at the 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 first part of the presentation. So, you know, you come and you're like, why are you here today? And they say, for example, oh, my belly hurts. You explore that, you finish. And then afterwards, like, and you know, doc, I have this, 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 this. And unfortunately, within our setting, sometimes you can't. One, you can't approach all of them at the same time. And two, you're just like, we just did the entire interview and I asked you why you're here. And now you want to put everything else at the end. It can be sometimes frustrating. And I don't think a lot of us may be very good at hiding that frustration or even kind of like annoyance with, oh my gosh, you know, I have to do everything all over again. So, how do we avoid that? And how do we kind of gear them towards giving us or giving us the list of complaints that they have in the beginning?
1: I don't know if it can be avoided, unless it's a patient that you can see again. I've had both experiences. I've had the experience where a patient will, you know, bundle the complaints towards the end. And I've had the experience where the patient comes armed with a list of things wanting to be discussed. No, honestly, both are annoying. Both are annoying because nothing, there is no way that 11 items on a list can all be priority. One of them must be priority and the others must be secondary. It's just fact. So. What do you do? If the patient comes and a list of things thereafter, you have to help them to cone in on what is important. Among these things that you've said to me, what of these are chronic, acute, ongoing, worse, etc.? so that we can move on to that thing? Because especially in our setting, we cannot, uh, you know, digress on 11, part, 11 points out of our circle. We can't do it. So we have to ask them to help us to understand which of these are, you know, critical to follow up on. Regarding the patients who come to the list, the same thing can occur. We can ask them which of these is most, you know, which of these is critical. The, the truth is, though, so the patient that comes with the list of things is probably the patient that you're going to see in clinic that you're trapped inside the room with. So you have to just slug it out. But the most important thing in either of those things is is still to be present, still to look up in the patient's face. Because as you said, Samantha, in fact, many times you'll be surprised how you're doing the interview. And if you just have enough self-awareness to look at the patient's face, you say, oh, my, this is a person, you know, rather than a (laughs) list of things and complaints and so on. It's a difference when you realize it's a person that's speaking to versus a a disembodied voice. There's such a great difference. It can lessen the load that you feel about the situation. It can help you to feel a certain sense of being in something rather than being outside and having to withdraw from yourself to help something else. But yes, a patient with a list, whether before or after, is particularly annoying It's it's just one of the things in life. You just have to find a way to be able to find out what is priority so that you can help them with the thing that is priority. In the setting of a private office or so, it's much more difficult because in essence, they're expected to be there for that time to hear all the things that hate them and trouble them. And there's a sense that you can do it, But you have to know what is priority. And you have to ask him to help you to know what is priority.
0: That's true. Because I was going to bring up that even this is not just in the context of public care. Because just because when you go to a private physician, you're still only slotted for a certain amount of time. And not all complaints can be addressed. And I don't really think the issue is a list of complaints. But it's a part where we explain and say, hey... Listen. This is what we have to do. What is the issue that you want me to solve right now, and what can we, what can we look at at a later date for you to do a follow up appointment about, you know, and just help them understand that it's not that doctor doesn't want to talk about your list. It's just that we have to keep in mind our timing constraints and the other patients who are waiting, and that. We want, to, we want to try and look at the problem that is going to have the greatest impact on you first. And then in another appointment, in another follow-up appointment, we can then address the second one.
1: The truth is many times patients know, may come with a list, and, and maybe this is cynical of me, but they may come with a list as an appeal for care, for want of a better term. The list is not the thing. The list is, a, is something to hang a conversation over. But in the list, they are talking to me. I am talking to them. They are feeling listened to. I am listening. If you understand what I'm saying, they are coming for the therapeutics of the time, right? Many times, these are problems that were never solved, were not solvable, but they may need uh, encouragement or you know hope that you know life continues etc sometimes there may not be necessarily problems to solve it's just that they want to talk to you they feel if you are the person that can listen gives the appearance of somebody who listens well then you know they may feel more open to speak about the things and maybe in an untrammeled time they may speak about what is the real issue Um, you know, but many times you don't have the time to get to the real issue because the real issue is buried under onion skins of lists, (laughs) um, you know, which you have to unpeel to get to the, what the actual issue is.
0: That's so true. I've had that experience and I remember just this week, a patient came in, into the interview room and they said, doc. I've been to so many doctors um, and I've just not been getting help. You know, one of my doctors just says that, you know, I'm just being, um, I can't remember the word. It's not a hypochondria. They didn't use that fancy word, but kind of something like that. But then when I asked, why are you here today? It was very difficult for them to articulate why they're here today. Mm -hmm. And... It, when, when, when it is that you come with such vague complaints and you can't necessarily pinpoint what it is, sometimes it can be difficult to to find out what the issue is and you sometimes get unnecessary investigation, unnecessary medications, and so on. And I could see the patient's frustration because I 100% believe that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's almost as if they they could not... Tell me what it was, but then there was this expectation that I was supposed to know, and I found myself saying a lot of times that hey, you have to help guide me because I'm gonna be able to tell nine times out of ten what the problem is based on my history and the questions you answer and how you answer them, right? And for me that was kind of a wake-up call because I said, you know, Samantha sometimes you have to put yourself in their shoes and I could look, I could see this lady's frustration and see her. It was almost kind of like this. I don't want to say desperation, but it was very close to that to saying I've had this issue for months now. It's an embarrassing, uncomfortable issue. And I just can't seem to get the help that I, I need no matter what investigations I do no matter what uh, medications I take I just can't seem to get it and you can imagine I'm in a clinic setting and I've spent maybe about 20 minutes to half an hour in this interview room trying to get to the bottom of this chronic problem and I, I don't know I think at the end of it I just I literally was just very honest and I said you know boy it, this was re this was really a difficult one to get to the bottom of mm-hmm. but this is what i think it is because we finally peeled back all the layers all the issues we went through the history we went through what medications they got the results they got and we finally reached the end of it and when we finally reached it the patient was so apologetic you know they're like i'm so sorry that i don't know what's happening but and they literally said but me know me i either me know myself and i was just like i you are not, you're not an idiot, you know, you have a problem that is fine, right, however, because the specifics of it are so hard to come by, right, that it takes, it takes a little bit more time and a little bit more interest to find what the problem is, but we eventually did it, and I think for a lot of us sometimes there's difficulty in communicating with our patients, mm-hmm. um, especially because in Jamaica, and if you're in the public system, you're seeing patients of a certain, you oftentimes the patients of a certain education level. And I find myself that when I go to doctor sometimes, and I, I, for example, have a feeling, sometimes I can't even find a word to describe the feeling. And, you know, you, you're a university trained person. You're expected to have this level of, intelligence or education and this level this grasp of vocabulary and descriptive words and whatnot and i think a lot of us have problems describing what's happening to us and but then we have this expectation a lot of times that patients can kind of just say to us this is what i'm feeling here it is um and have the words perfectly to say it Because definitely the most, I think the most annoying thing to hear is must have pain or it hurts and you're just like, okay, but what does it feel like? And you hear, but it just hurts, doc. Right? Mm -hmm. And I have times where I feel something, I mean, I'm feeling some kind of pain. I have no idea how to describe it. So (laughs) I don't know. I don't know.
1: Well, I think many times we we fail to realize the diagnostic value of the interview, right? We we feel that we yes. have to go on to do tests and so on. But are those tests necessary? Did the interview support your need for getting those additional tests done? And many times the answer is no. So we we in a sense we kill off ourselves saying, oh god oh god oh god I have to finish the interview. I have to get them to do one bag of tests to interpret etc. When in fact the interview may have really straighten out the issue for you saying okay this is not acute this is not likely to have occurred this is a major issue let's investigate this particular issue and so you have more selectivity in terms of the type of investigations that you do and so on So there's therapeutic value in the interview it's just that we don't give ourselves space for it and many times in a sense a lot of the times we need to get or understand that and, and maybe for me it's conscience. You know that there's more to be to be, you know, extracted, but you say no, you know, write a prescription, send them off, etc. When in fact maybe you just need to sit a little longer, get the fulsomeness of what is there. And maybe the things that you thought are there piling up and so they've sorted themselves out because you you have taken the time to do one particular thing properly and well that allows you to go through the other tasks that you do with a certain sense and a certain confidence. Many times, you know, I find that think, the million things that I thought were, you know, they're wilting and failing and needing me to prop them up. They, they didn't need me to prop them up. I just need to, needed to focus on the, th- the task at hand and start it talk properly and move on to the next thing. Many times our conscience would tell us, you know, just. Just hold on a little longer. Get get more, get a better understanding. For me, I know that many times, and, and maybe this is how this is from working so long, maybe or so, and interview the patient until a certain point says, like I feel a little switch go off and say, okay, that's it. I don't need to ask them anymore. Any anything else I ask them is fluff, you know. I've gotten to the real issue. I can't start to write. No, I can't start to do my diagnosis. I can't start to do investigations. Because I've gotten to the real issue and this is where the diagnosis will lie.
0: That's so true. That's so true. Um, definitely because um, another conversation I was having where the history is what really gives you the diagnosis and the examination Helps you more so with uh, confirming that diagnosis, and then your investigations as well can help in that regard. But everything is guided by the history. Um, I want to just kind of shift gears now. Hopefully, we of course we can't cover every single thing. This is just like a like a call it like an introductory lecture, or whatever. I just really want healthcare workers. Um, and especially persons who have influence in the education space, whether it is as a supervising consultant or um, senior, um, or an actual lecturer in 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 the healthcare world, to understand that there is value in having actual classes geared at improving bedside manner. We mentioned relatives and again yes we have Google Dr Google and we're having a lot of uh, a lot of times though we have to really interface with relatives. You know in things like pediatrics you definitely have to speak to parents. Um in know where patients might either not be able to 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 speak for them speak for themselves or not be able to understand well because of whatever um issues they might be having, or even their age, especially for the elderly, you oftentimes have to talk to relatives. One thing I want to ask about first before we we talk about how to talk about relatives is sometimes we might have relatives who are overzealous. I don't know if that's a good word to use. But you know, you're in a hospital setting and sometimes they want you to always be available to talk to them. And I don't I want to know how it is that we can necessarily put it across that you know, I am available to speak with you for sure. That's not a problem. I'm available to update you. What might not happen is that I might not be available whenever you want me to be available or I might not be available at the frequency that you want me to be available?
1: Well, I think it it probably goes back to boundaries. I think it's important to set boundaries from early. Um, Yes, we want to keep relatives in the loop, but we have to make it clear at the outset and reiterate it that we are not available at their beck and call. It's It's not... on for them to be there all the time and asking for updates all the time it's just not on precisely because it's not we can't do it we don't have that time to do it and um we we just can't do it it's 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 in good form so what we can say is that we're speaking to you now we intend to speak to you again so in essence you have to make yourself accountable Make yourself accountable and make yourself accountable to them. We'll speak again at X time. If there's an issue at that time, I'll do my best to find another time to speak. But I can't speak every day or whatever it is. We'll speak again in 48 hours and make yourself accountable. So if you told them 48 hours, then ensure that you make yourself accountable at that time or available at that time as much as is possible to have that conversation because it it i suppose it builds trust and it enforces or reinforces a boundary the doctor said 48 hours he delivered that 48 hours so yes i can trust him to deliver again you know if he says 72 hours if he can't speak today if you understand what i'm saying but if the first interaction was you know difficult and they get the sense that i don't want to speak to them it it it, it creates a bad impression from the start. So you, you speak to them, you say, okay, this is what the situation is because of how it is, we'll probably have to speak again in 48 hours and you make yourself available for that 48 hours, it adds to your credit or credibility that you know, you are a person of your word, you will keep up your end of the bargain. So therefore you also, that is the relatives, need to keep up their end of the bargain and not. But it has to be reinforced. they come again, you have to tell them no. remember we said that you know I can't make this thing whatever today. we will speak again tomorrow, etc, 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 and keep your word when you're doing it.
0: Definitely, definitely. Um, I think another what I learned in my medicine rotation, um, particularly from you, was that the importance of keeping relatives updated, right? Um, so it's not a thing where you don't ever want to speak to the relatives, no. Or, you know, you're kind of just disappearing before relatives can come. But a practice that I've kind of adapted from our first interaction is that once a patient's current medical, how they are, there's medical status changes that uh, what I will do is inform the relative. And then what I like about that, especially in the context, I think this is very important. Well, in COVID, I don't really think, Okay, I don't know if we can get visitors on the isolation wards in, on COVID wards across the country. I have no idea. You know, um, because I don't work in that area um, right now. But I remember the value of when, for example, a patient is deteriorating. Instead of waiting until the patient has crashed or has passed to call the family, you kind of call them and you bring them in. And, you know, you give them a heads up on what is happening. And kind of, you know, softly say, you know, it's, it's not looking so well. We can't speak in definitives, but, you know, we'd encourage, you know, to bring the family and spend some time with your relative, and I found that that makes when if and when they eventually pass or um, whatever complica- complication has happened, it makes it such a nice a nicer experience um, for both the patient and for their relatives. right?:
1: Yes, I'm, I mean, I believe it. I, the, the regrets I have. Or when, you know, I said, you know, I saw something going downhill and I didn't take the time to make the relatives aware that those are the regrets I would, I have, I would have. Because ultimately, you know, it's a human being, right? They're brought there by somebody. They are, they live in the context of a family. The person's there, you see them going the way of all flesh. You would want somebody to know if, if it were your, you know, your family, you'd want to know, you know, to spend the, the, the remaining time, whatever it is, to be there. So, when I see that happening, as much as is possible, I really try personally to make the effort to speak to the relatives because ultimately, you know, we live with each other, we live in family, we live in connected groups. We don't, you know, no man is an island, as somebody says. So if you can make that connection with the relatives before the, the worst happens, then it would mean so much. I, I would suppose it means so much to them because in my head it would mean so much to me if I were in that situation.
0: For real, that's for sure. Um yeah, I think I think this is a great place to to really end it. Um I think we've spoken about so much in a, in a very small amount of time and, and we have touched on a lot of important topics and I really hope that, or my best advice that I can give, because it's one that I try to live by, is to look for good examples but also learn from bad examples. And Mm -hmm. sometimes your own self can be a bad example. And there's nothing wrong with looking at your past experiences and your past mistakes, taking a step back and saying, but how was I in the wrong and how could I improve and how could I be better, right? So that's what I've been trying to do until we have some kind of formal class put in and formal practice put in but learning from adapting the good examples and learning from the bad examples so uh, dr rooks you know i don't know if you're on social media or anything or like if you have anything to promote (laughs) i don't know usually (laughs) this is where i ask persons to To, to plug themselves yeah to plug themselves
1: no unfortunately As as I've always told you, Sam, I'm like old, but we've had this inside joke before. I am a millennial just like you, but my social media presence is limited. I live mostly in the real world. Actually, I live mostly in a virtual world, but that virtual world is in my head, not on social media.
0: (laughs) All right. So, thank you so much again for. Um, Being a part of this podcast, I hope that persons take the value from it that I've taken and I really wanted them to have an opportunity to learn from one of my good examples. And it's really encouraging to hear that you are where you are because one, you've learned from your own mistakes, but you're also continuing to learn even at this point in your career, okay. right? So, thank you so much for being on the pod.
1: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: So, thanks everybody for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. If you want to reach out to me or follow me, I'm at the layman's dr on Instagram and on Twitter. You can email me at the layman's doctor. That's completely spelled out the layman's doctor at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this please don't forget to like it share it and leave a rating and a comment i would really really appreciate that until next time thank you again for listening